So thanks very much, Sachinini, for that um, introduction. And uh, yeah, well, I appreciate being invited here. I actually, this is the new Manchester Centre for me. I, I, I went to the old one and this, this hadn't actually yet been created. <laughs> So I haven't been here before. <laughs> so it's about time really, isn't it? Um, yeah. Did I need to close that book? Probably not. Never mind. So um, this is going to be a talk on Amitabha. Can everyone hear me okay? And you can see me near enough. Yes. Um, so I've called it, the title is Redshift, which if you don't know what Redshift is, you'll find out. Um, and the Discriminating Wisdom of Amitabha. But I'm going to begin with a, um, a poem. It's very short, so I might say it twice. I should be content to look at a mountain for what it is and not a comment on my life. That's so by the poet David Ignato. Doesn't quite sound right, but it's something like that anyway. I should be content to look at a mountain for what it is and not a comment on my life. So it's a very short poem, but he kind of gets to the point of um, this deep tendency we have in us to reference the world in relation to us, not for what it is in itself. And um, the tendency we have to ask, well, what can this thing or what can this person do for me or be for me? Something that's essentially um, appropriative. Uh, utilitarian, maybe even exploitative sometimes. So it's this tendency we have to impose ourselves, our longings and desires and needs onto the world. And it comes out in the way we treat things and in the assumptions that we make. So it's not to do with intelligence. Uh, you can be really intelligent and still do that. Um, uh, you can still make assumptions that just reflect your own longings and preferences and project them onto the world. So I was um, trying, <laughs> I, haven't, I barely understood half of it, but trying to read Stephen Hawkins' A Brief History of Time uh, recently. And among other things, um, he's looking at our understanding of the universe, so it's not a small subject, and how our thinking about it has developed, what we've learnt about it. And in particular, he was looking at how we think of the universe, and is it static, or does it change or move, and how so? And um, what he was pointing out was ever since Newton came out with his um, theories of gravity, his laws of universal gravity and motion, which was back in 1687, um, uh, it's been possible since that time to work out, if somebody wanted to and was clever enough, that the universe is expanding. But nobody figured that out because we all thought it was static. Even Einstein, so this is the jolly clever person I was referring to, in 1915, Theory of Relativity, uh, actually, 
actually it kind of like how it works apparently not that I understand a word of this but apparently it does sort of suggest that the universe is expanding but he really wasn't into that idea he was very uh, sure it was static so two years later he put in this little constant into the equation to make the whole thing static it's quite an interesting thing to do and there's only a Russian physicist called Alexander Friedman um, who thought, hmm, maybe it is expanding and I'll kind of like play around with that idea. And he did that in the 1920s. And then finally in 1929, Hubble, um, I'm not sure what his first name is, Hubble's like Bubble, isn't it? It's a great name. Mm. Hubble came up with the proof that the universe was actually expanding. Um, so he proved what Friedman was thinking all along. And... Um, he came up with that because of something called redshift. So if, a, if a, an object that is emitting light comes towards you, that light kind of gets squeezed in such a way that it shifts towards the blue end of the spectrum. If that object is travelling away from you, the light extends the other way and it goes towards the red end of the spectrum. This is very basic if you actually know anything about this stuff. Ah, you know. It's a sort of Doppler effect in light if that means anything to you. So the redshift meant that, because Hubble could see it everywhere, it meant that everything was moving away from everything else. It meant that the universe was expanding. So I was just interested in the fact that it took such a long time for us to figure that out and I was quite interested in the fact that Einstein stuck in a constant because he didn't like the implications of his theory um, and then presumably had to take it out again 12 years later. And I just wondered whether, you know, how we think of things has a lot to do with what we want from things. And you can imagine that maybe uh, Einstein, among others, would quite like a nice, static, stable, reassuring sort of universe, given that he'd already bent time and space anyway. Um, he probably did long for that um, steadiness. So I was just wondering, well, maybe that's what that was all about. Maybe it's how we wanted to imagine the world. Yeah? Um, it wasn't just to do with ob objective observation. So this, this redshift theme and the, I, the, the fact that the universe is expanding is one of the major intellectual revolutions in the 20th century. And there have been many others where we've had to completely sort of rethink or re-understand or reimagine what we are and what the world is. From you know, way back in ancient times when people were having to get to grips with moving from a flat earth to a, a sphere to Copernicus saying, actually, I think we might be going around the sun rather than the other way around, to Darwin and the theory of evolution. Now, I was the reason why I'm mentioning all of this is about the time that I was reading this, I got this invitation to come here and give a talk. So I had my mind full of that, and then somebody said Amitabha. And I, I did, I sort of thought, well, in a way, Buddhism has its own revolutions that it offers. Um, uh, in terms of how we imagine ourselves and the world and particularly in terms of what it's possible for a human being to be or to become. Um, so I wanted to um, tonight I want to explore an image from Buddhism and sort of unpack that sort of revolutionary aspect um, and the image that I was asked to give a talk on is Amitabha is the archetypal red Buddha and we've got, I brought a picture in case we didn't have one, that was so silly, you can tell I haven't been here. So we have this enormous Amitabha um, 
And he stands for, well, I would say he stands for revolutions of the heart and insights of love. And that is his red shift, we could say. Yeah, that's his red shift. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. But I'll just begin by um, placing Amitabha in context. So you're probably, as apparently this year is on Amitabha, so you probably got a sense of where he comes. It's the, the mandala of the five Buddhas. But if you go right back in time, originally we just had the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, who uh, you know, uh, lived in a particular place at a particular time. And then as Buddhism evolved, we got a sense of a Buddha in the past and the present. So people started to extend this idea of what the, what the enlightened being or the enlightened mind was, sort of through time. Yeah? We got Maitreya, the Buddha of the future, and Dipankara, the Buddha of the past. And then later again in the Vajrayana, we get uh, the mandala, which you can imagine is the sort of unfolding of uh, the awakened mind through space. Yeah, it starts to, people start to think, ah, okay, uh, it's not limited either in time or in space. So it starts to expand outwards the facets of the awakened mind into the different directions. And they have different colours, different times of day. So these are, these are the Buddhas of the different directions, different wisdoms, different poisons that they transform and different qualities. So, but they all represent facets of the awakened mind. So the, the image is a bit like, um, uh, well, the, the often used image is a bit like shining white light through a prism. Yeah? It refracts out into a rainbow of colours. So in the same way, the awakened mind uh, refracts out into different colours, into different directions, into different aspects. And so what you have is this um, already a way of imagining the awakened mind as something, as, as going from a singularity to a multiplicity of things. Yeah. It has many ways of being in the world. Um, and Amitabha is this Western Buddha, this archetypal figure who is red, um, his element is fire. His time of day is the evening as the sun sets. He's the head of the lotus family, so he's associated with the image of, the un of an organic growth and unfolding. He's got an animal, which is the peacock, very lovely bird. And he's associated with love particularly with love. And he has a wisdom, which is a discriminating wisdom. So even that I find interesting. So often we talk about wisdom and compassion, but actually he's got a wisdom, but all the other Buddhas have got wisdom. So I think we could talk of wisdoms rather than a singular wisdom. Discriminating wisdom is to see all the specific, unique uh, facets of reality. Other Buddhas have different takes on it. So we have some, someone like uh, uh, the, um, the Buddha of the South, Ratnasambhava, who has the wisdom of equality. He sees what is common between all living beings. Yeah. And then we have, uh, say, Akshobhya, the Buddha of the East, who has a mirror-like wisdom. So just sees things just as they are. It's a way of imagining just a very clean, clear reflection of reality. So there's different ways, there's different perspectives. 
And as the Buddha that's associated with love, and I think therefore we can say with the heart, um, Amitabha, I suppose, is associated with all of the, with, with passion. Um, and sometimes passion gets maybe a bit of a bad name. Um, I'll kind of come on to that later actually, but because um, sometimes it gets translated as a poison. But if you think of the heart, and we speak of being wholehearted, being wholehearted, and the heart is, and the passion of the heart, and the love of the heart is the fuel in our spiritual practice. And if we haven't got that, then nothing much is going to happen. It's going to be quite anemic, our practice. So there's something really important about being able to engage the heart, and how we can engage the heart with our spiritual practice. And maybe it's helpful at this point to consider what the heart is like um, in terms of how we can engage it. And we don't mean, we don't mean the literal heart here. We mean the heart where the centre of your feeling, the centre of your passion. So it's a metaphorical heart. We're already, we're already imagining. <coughs> And the heart does not think about things and produce concepts. It feels and it produces images. So it has its own language. And it's poetic. Well, I'd say it's poetic. It speaks in poetry. And it notices, and this relates to the discriminating wisdom, it notices the distinct and the particular, the personal and the specific doesn't work in generalizations particularly because generalizations are abstract and we don't love in the abstract we love this person for this particular uh, way they are in the world for these particular qualities and characteristics it's the same way as we recognize you recognize a lover or a good friend from a long way off you just know how they walk, how they carry themselves, and your heart leaps maybe, yeah. So we love things um, for their own unique loveliness, yeah. And Amitabha, he represents this love to all beings, but each specific and individual uh, being. So it's not a general love, it's a very specific love the loveliness of beings. And the poem Miroslav Holob, um, he starts a poem which is t entitled What the Heart is Like, uh, with a few lines that I really like. Uh, so that the poem begins, officially the heart is oblong, muscular and filled with longing. So he moves the heart from the literal heart to the imaginal heart straight away and then he says it's filled with longing. And we are perhaps filled with longing. I don't know if that rings any bells for people. Certainly I, something I can relate to, being filled with longing. And this takes us back to a teaching of the, the Buddha, very basic teaching. And he talks about how uh, we have, we are thirsty. Well, there's this word tanha, tanha, which literally means thirst, 
but it means thirst in a metaphorical way. There's nothing wrong with not having had a drink for a while, it being very hot and being thirsty. It's a metaphorical thirst, and it's not the literal thirst. Sometimes it also gets translated as craving. But the Buddha is saying that there's a basic existential thirst in us. We long for something. And I don't know if you've read a book by David Loy called, um, it's called A Buddhist History of the West. And Loy sort of frames this thirst in terms of lack, an experience of lack. And how he thinks about it is this lack comes out of a sort of sense of groundlessness. So I'll just explain what he means by that. So what he's suggesting is that anything that is constructed, that is put together, that is fabricated, can be deconstructed, can fall apart. It has an inherent instability to it. It requires effort to keep it together. And one of the foundational teachings of the Buddha is anatta, or uh, we could call it essencelessness. And sometimes people talk about not having a fixed self. But we believe we do, and that self that we have, that we, that we construct, uh, is therefore inherently unstable. So we, we make, we create an identity or Sometimes it gets called a narrative self by joining all the moments of our experience up and creating something that we call, well, this is me, this is my identity, this is what I am. It's a sort of joining of the dots through time. And it's creating an essence. We're trying to create a sort of core of our being, which the Buddha said actually isn't there. So what you have is you're doing something uh, to try and give yourself a bit of ground, but actually it's unstable. So to live uh, as self-conscious beings in this world means that on some level, this is what Loy is suggesting, we're aware that actually we have constructed something that is unstable and underneath that is a groundlessness. It creates a sense of dis-ease in us. And that, he's saying, is why we experience this sense of lack. Yeah, there's a sort of existential dis-ease. And he's saying that this lack or thirst, it's interchangeable, is what drives us. So we are driven through our lives to try and assuage that sense it's like filling, filling a hole or, or slaking the thirst in us. And individually we'll try to do that in all sorts of different ways, but maybe we'll go for success and fame and romantic love. And in Loy's book he's also looking at it more collectively in terms of society or culture, the ways we try and um, create wealth and security and growth as being um, collective expressions of that same thirst or lack. It's this same lack that advertisers are so good at uh, exploiting and amplifying in us, offering us hope that this gadget, this home, this lifestyle uh, will fill that hole. It's what makes us consumers. It's an interesting way to think of ourselves, isn't it, as consumers?
point is if the Buddha is uh, pointing to the fact that actually we don't have this essence, this fixed self in the first place, then anything we do to fill that sense of lack is going to fail. So it's sort of a doomed, it's a doomed project. So going back to the, um, the mandala of the Buddhas again, each Buddha has a particular poison that they can transform into a particular quality. So each of those, that movement from a poison to a quality is a, is a sort of uh, an invitation to imagine a certain sort of transformation or a certain sort of alchemy that could happen. And Amitabha's poison is raga which I will explain in a bit, but it's connected to Tanha. Um, and as I've already said, his quality is love. So we're looking at this sort of alchemical change from Raga to love. Now Raga is sometimes translated as passion. But as I've already said, you need passion. So. Um, it's not passion that's the problem, as in the energy and the inspiration of the heart, but it's more the attachment and the fixation that comes out of it. So sometimes raga is translated, I think um, Sangharacha translates it as cupidity attachment, which I'm not sure about myself, <laughs> it makes me scratch my head, but anyway, uh, the sort of love, uh, the, the sort of attachment and love, I suppose, I'm talking about cupidity. But another way of thinking about it, you could think about this sort of compulsive fixations that we get into. Um, I think the word both compulsive and fixation work separately as translations for raga, but if you put them together, you sort of get the full-blown thing, really. The way we latch onto things, so so the way we think, oh, this will this will do it, yeah, this will make the difference. So we have this existential thirst, this anatta. Uh, so we have we have anatta, which is this essenceless, which leads to this sense of an existential lack or thirst, and then we have this more the, the movement of the heart towards that that thing. This is going to sort me out. So we could say that raga, or um, this compulsive fixation, is when we take the specific thing and grasp it. Whereas love is when we meet the specific thing, notice its particularity, and we don't grasp, and the natural response is love. Yeah. So they both deal in sort of particulars, but one's a grasping and one's not. So it's sort of interesting, I find it interesting to think about, we have a natural capacity to love, but it almost immediately, almost like a reflex, tips over into grabbing. Yeah, it's very hard, you fall in love and then, you know, you're attached. It's like, the two go together. Um, this, this trying to grab hold of or appropriate. So interestingly, in, in the book Know Your Mind, when Sangharach is talking about Raga, he actually starts quite quickly talking about imagination as being the solution. Which I think is interesting because in a way the whole problem is an imaginal one. This idea of a fixed self or a narrative self is 
an imagined thing, yeah? It, it never has existed, it never has been real. And the sense of lack that arises out of that is because we sort of half see that that imagined sense self isn't stable, uh, isn't really true, yeah? So we have a choice at that point. We have a choice. We can either let go of this imagined sense of self and sit with an experience of not having that, a sort of groundlessness, a sort of ungraspability of, of our nature, a sort of unpinned down ability of what we are. Or we try and reinforce the self by grabbing, grasping, uh, and try and fill that hole, which is the raga. So that's the choice. And then there's which way we tend to go, which is raga. Are you with me so far? Mm -hmm. Yes, okay, good. Just checking. So I wanted to spend a little time looking at how raga works. This is just me trying to think it through. So I thought, well, in a way, first of all, you have to come across a thing, or it might be a being, a living being probably, um, and think this is it. So first of all, you have to isolate the thing. And you have to sort of be attracted, it has to be attractive to you in some way, and then you have to grab it. So it's sort of like these three different things, elements that need to come in. And I was thinking, uh, we hit problems with maybe all of those elements. So firstly, like how do we define anything? Say, this is something and this is what I want. Um, you can give something a name. You can say penguin, for example. Um, and then we think that we've kind of got something, yeah? We've got a penguin. Well, as soon as we name it, we think we can possess it. And because we confuse a name or an idea with the thing itself. Now, the reason I was mentioning penguins is because I went to Bristol Zoo the other day. And that was very interesting because I haven't been there for like 25 years and zoos have completely reimagined themselves as well. So they're full of animals that you've never seen before because there are only a few hundred left. So it's all, uh, you know, conservation, rare breeding programs, um, that sort of thing, rather than entertainment. Anyway, there was penguins. Um, so what's a penguin? There's many different types of penguins, but the ones I saw were South African and they're endangered. And I, was, I could just look at a penguin and think, penguin. But then the question arises, well, is it the penguin that I see on the land, which is, um, actually didn't really look at me very much and was rather ungainly. Or you can go under in, into a sort of underwater tunnel thing. It's great at Bristol Zoo. So you kind of walk past and through all this water. And then you see these completely different beasties come swimming down and they're beautiful and elegant and agile and they blow little bubbles and then they see you and they stop and they hover and they look at you and they engage. Well, is that a penguin? It felt totally different. And um, is it, can I actually uh, say something as a penguin, as a human being looking at it? Or in a way, does it take a penguin to really see a penguin for what it is? Apparently they've all got different sort of markings on their chest. So presumably every penguin recognises every other penguin, but human beings <coughs> don't tend to notice the difference. Is a penguin a penguin alone? Or does it have to be in a group to be a real penguin? Is a penguin a penguin in a zoo? 
or is it really a penguin in the wild? There's many different ways of considering a penguin and none of them are complete and sufficient in themselves. So the point, if we move away slightly from penguins, um, is that whatever appears to us through our senses, we can't know it in its fullness. Yeah? We can't really know the world out there, firstly. We're only able to know what we can experience of it. And then any experience we have comes from a particular perspective. So you can see the world in a huge amount of detail by looking down a microscope, but you don't see the stars. And you can understand someone's genetic makeup, but it doesn't tell you about their longings. And you can view something from the perspective of quantum mechanics, and it doesn't tell you what love or justice is. And you can look at a picture of Bach, and it won't tell you about his music. Yeah. So however or whatever we attend to, inevitably we don't attend to something else. We, don't, we see one perspective but we don't see others. So there's something inherently limited in what we can experience and know of the world. There is no single right perspective, but there's a multitude of perspectives. And we tend to think in terms of what's the right one, a sense of a singular right, ideal, best, you know, often think of scientific objective um, perspective. But even that is uh, a particular way of imagining the world. So I just want to suggest that when we hold the view that whatever the world is, it's uh, for our use or it uh, is in relation to us, then we see it narrowly and we diminish it. And at the same time, I'd say we diminish ourselves as well. So the penguin is as unpindownable as anything else, including you or me. So then the other, another aspect that we needed for Raga, there's the thing and then there's this attraction or love that happens, which is an extraordinary thing. Um, that response of the heart when you see something lovely or beautiful, the way it just leaps. Um, and we tend to think it's in the object itself, it's in the person, it's in that dog, it's in that penguin, whatever it is. because we tend to think that we see the world objectively. And again, going back to Buddhism, there's this image that I quite like of the mind as a hand. So you could say that maybe the sort of the palm of the hand is the bare apprehension of the world, of experience. But then all the fingers represent other uh, mental, um, might, what you call, might be called mind objects, but things like detention, like whether we're distracted or focused, and the way in which we recognise things, and the pleasure or pain that comes from that. And we never get the bare apprehension of the world. We always bring a whole lot of other things to, to something as well. Yeah. So the insight here is that how, how we are aware 
deeply conditions what we're aware of. We have a quality of our consciousness at any moment of time and that affects uh, our experience. So the kind of attention we bring to bear on the world changes the nature of the world. Which is quite interesting, isn't it? Because then you could just start asking yourself right now, what kind of attention am I bringing? What kind of consciousness am I bringing to the world now? And there isn't a right or wrong, it's just that you are bringing something and that is affecting your experience. And if you are my friend, the way in which I attend to you will be different from the way I'd attend to you if you were my employer, my lover, my aunt, the postman, yeah? And this isn't just true with the human world, but with everything we come into contact with. So a mountain is seen differently by a mountaineer or a painter or a mineral prospector. There's no one way of seeing it that's true and each of them is there's something being bought by that person. And if you attend to me as an object or if you attend to me as a lover, it completely changes what I can reveal of myself to you. So it's interesting, isn't it? You get that sense if someone treats you warmly and with great kindness, you open. And if someone treats you curtly, brusquely and a bit, you know, as a, a obstacle in their life, you, it, it, you end up being a certain sort of way. So it's very reciprocal. It's not a singular, it's not a singular thing. So basically we're back to our mind creates our world. And bringing this back to attraction or love, beauty is then not in the object, not in the person out there, not in the being, but nor is it in us, but it's somehow in the betweenness. There's something that happens in between us, yeah? And I quite like the way the ancient Greeks used to think about it, because they had Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Um, and how love worked for the ancient Greeks was that she illuminated the object that we, found, that we find lovely, yeah? So you, it's not in the object, it's not in you, it's the goddess illuminating this particular thing. So that, that illumination doesn't belong anywhere, it's, it's divine. I think that's as good a way as any of seeing it, of thinking about it. So back to penguins, we've got our penguin, which we can't define because we can't get an overarching sort of complete perspective on it. Uh, we think it's lovely, but its beauty uh, is neither in the penguin nor in us, but something to do with Aphrodite, something in between. <laughs> um, and not understanding that, not understanding this multiplicity, not understanding this indefinability, not understanding this between us, this sort of conversation between us and Penguin, uh, not comprehending that we are not really separate things, 
um, but a unique emergent co-arising of something unrepeatable, ungraspable and inexpressible, we grab the penguin. Yeah, my penguin. And what do you get? What do you get when you grab the penguin? You got something wriggly, strong, damp, smelly, with a sharp beak and a really bad temper. Yeah? <laughs> you haven't got what you wanted at all. Yeah? That's not what you wanted when you, when you thought, I'll grab the penguin. And you never can get what you want, yeah? You never can. You grab that lovely thing, whatever it is, and you never get what you want because, <laughs> well, for everything I've just said, yeah? And when we grab something, you could say we're sort of squeezing the life out of it, yeah? The loveliness out of it. But we still do that and then we don't let go. And we do this in our lives and we do this in our loves and to our loves and we do this to ourselves. And so often we don't even notice we're doing it. So I had a personal example from a relationship I was in where, um, you know, quite often when you're in a relationship, yeah, there's a sort of uh, asymmetry that comes out somewhere, yeah? One person wants more of something than somebody else does. And in this case, um, my, uh, the guys in a relationship wanted more connection than I was doing. So more phone calls, more time together. And um, I was, you know, we talked about it. I was doing my best, but it felt like no matter what I did, it was never quite enough. So either, either I did actually manage to ring him first, but I felt like I had to make this huge effort. And then it was like, yeah, but what about all the other times we haven't done that? Yeah, or else he'd beat me to it. Um, and I just sort of felt like whichever way I moved, it wasn't, I couldn't quite get it right. And it's also, it wasn't working for him either. And it sort of came to a bit of a head and then it just, I don't know what happened. I sort of took my eye off a bit and uh, actually then it all just started working fine. And we were getting on really well. And months later, having been getting on really well for quite some time, he said, um, have you noticed, uh, uh, anything different? I said, yeah, we're getting on quite well, aren't we? And, you know, um, and I don't feel like I'm in your bad books. I feel like I'm getting in touch enough. It's like I felt like I had space to get in touch with him. It was fine. It was mutual. And he said, yeah, do you know why that is, though? And I said, no. And he said, well, I realised it wasn't working. And I realised that I was wanting you to be something that you weren't. I was wanting you to do something that you just couldn't do. And I, so I decided to let go. And he said it was an act of will, and it really hurt, and he had to make himself do it, and he deliberately didn't tell me, and he just sat with it. He wasn't getting what he wanted, and he knew it wasn't working pushing, so he just sat with not getting what he wanted. And it completely changed the dynamic. And I thought that was fascinating, because it just made, it made so much difference. And actually, it was a fabulous thing to do. I'm glad he didn't, you know, it's good he didn't tell me because I would have gone on a guilt trip, but um, it was interesting how well it worked. It was interesting how well it worked. And that was him just ungrasping. Um, and the thing is, when we grasp, when we do this grasping, we, this fixing, we, it just, it's, it's flattening, limiting, tightening, yeah? Makes ourselves, our relationships, our world flat. And when we start to release and to loosen and open, we 
which is what I'm suggesting is this sort of red shift that Amitabha symbolizes. Then we get this alchemical move from raga to love. Yeah? So actually it's about stopping that grasping somehow. When you do that, what naturally arises is appreciative, aesthetic awareness. It's spontaneous, open, fresh. The way the world appears is beautiful. Yeah, And sometimes, if you've been on retreat, you might notice that we meditate maybe more than we normally do, and then we open our eyes and the world is lovely. Yeah. And that's just a relaxed, easy, open mind that is not relating to anything in an appropriative way. So then experience and the world becomes something more of the nature of a mutual conversation. And on the last retreat I was on, someone wrote about their experiences on that retreat and um, one of the things they said was um, they'd realised that when we define something, it can only ever then be good or bad at being that thing. Yeah. And if you leave it open, then the good and bad doesn't come into it. It is as it is. It is as it is. Yeah. And they also said beings deserve to be seen as they are not judged as they deviate from some randomly imposed external idea. Yeah. And that's so often what we're doing. We're putting in this randomly imposed external idea of what this thing is. And then it's wrong or insufficient or not good enough. So back to that poem I started with, I should be content to look at a mountain for what it is and not to comment on my life. And in the same way, um, it's a very often quoted bit of Blake, isn't it? He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So this is the pure land of Amitabha, to kiss the joy as it flies. So I'm just going to say a last few things about this shift, this red shift that I've been talking about. It doesn't need to be big. It doesn't need to be big. Tiny is fine. Otherwise, we then start looking for some grand experience that the ego wants and appropriates and, you know, grabs hold of and kills. So... Um, it's not about something to grasp after, it's all those small, tiny moments in your life where you just simply allow the grip to release slightly, where you allow the possibility of not knowing, of something being unknown, of an opening, where you allow that you could imagine things differently. It's what we do in meditation. It's what we do in metta particularly, yeah, it's a reimagining of uh, other beings, of other people, yeah? We let them be what they are in themselves, not what they could be for us, yeah? In that sense, it's impersonal, unconditional. So it's a shift from raga, from compulsive fixation to love, a shift from solidifying things to fluidity. 
And actually that shift is not different from insight, from what people are talking about when they're talking about insight. And again, insight is not this singular shift from something being fixed to something being more open and fluid, but it's more that we have an ability to constantly find a perspective that can shift the whole time, that is creative. Yeah? We can be asking ourselves in any moment, what is the most helpful, most free, most creative, most loving response to this? And it's not a singular answer. It never is. So it's, an, it's a fluidity of imagination. It's a, it's a, a conversation or a betweenness of uh, self and other, in inverted commas, with no loss of distinct, uh, distinctness or beauty. But the last point I want to make of this is that if you remember what fed Raga in the first place was this thirst, yeah? is what we need to do is learn to sit with that sense of lack yeah and not jump out of it and you could think of that lack also as longing so we had that in the poem way back the longing of the heart so we need to reimagine our longing not as something that needs to be got out of the way and filled but as something that is part of being human David White talks about longing as divine discontent, which I really like. So he's reimagining longing. And he suggests that longing is felt through the lens and even the ache of the body. It starts in the centre of the body and then leads out like an uncaring invitation, like a comet's passing tail glimpsed only for a moment, but making us willing to give up our perfect house, our paid-for home, and our accumulated belongings. So it's this longing that can lead us onto and into the unknown, rather than into a sort of tight grasping. And Chogram Trumpa makes a link between longing and aloneness, which I think is quite interesting. So he says, when you walk into this world of reality, and I'd say that this is a world where we start to ungrasp this more fluid conversational world. When you walk into this world of reality, and he calls it a greater or a cosmic world, you will find the way to rule your world. But at the same time, you will also find a deep sense of aloneness. You will become a monarch with a broken heart. It's not a bad thing to be, by any means. In fact, it is the way to be a decent human being. And beyond that, a glorious human being who can help others. So in the end, this red shift that I'm talking about is not for us. It's not to improve the quality of our small lives, although it may. But it's a movement for the world, yeah? a way of being in the world and participating in the world, loving the world. <laughs>